Good evening, Clifford Baptist Church. It's good to have you with us tonight for a lesson that we're going to continue as we're walking through the entirety of the Bible together. Uh, tonight, our sanctuary is empty once again. We had a COVID exposure on Sunday, uh, and so uh, our church has been completely disinfected, completely cleaned. Uh, we're having just a little mini quarantine right now to make sure all is safe and everyone is safe. But we're planning to move straight on ahead with worship service on Sunday morning with in-person worship. So if you'd like to plan to be with us, we will be worshiping together as well as streaming, uh, as well as a signal to the parking lot. So just want you to know uh, that this is just a little bump in the road and we'll probably have a few of those in this season of time. Uh, but we are planning to worship together on Sunday morning. But welcome. I'm glad you're joining me with streaming tonight. Uh, and I thank you that uh, there are so many who have been faithful in joining us. I heard today... Uh, that Michael and Ann Gray in Alta Vista has been watching every uh, Wednesday night. Thank you so much. And I'd love to know that you're catching up with our Bible study every Wednesday night. Send me a little note or give me a call. Let me know that you're listening in. That uh, is great encouragement. But thank you for listening. Uh, so tonight we are going to continue on in our study through the Bible, the thread of love that runs through the Bible. This is lesson number 25, and tonight's lesson is the beginning of the church. That's the heading tonight, the beginning of the church. And now that we've studied in the past two lessons the true centerpiece of the Bible, in one lesson we studied the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and last week we studied the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Uh, we know that that is the culmination of our faith. That is the basis of our salvation. That's what all of the Bible revolves around is the death and the resurrection of the Lamb, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we're moving on now into a new phase of the Bible. And here's the phase that we move to now. It carries us to the end of the Bible. How do we follow that Savior who gave his life for us, risen again as a living Savior. We give our life to him. How do we then follow him? So we're going to concentrate on the birth and the history of the church. So as we get started, let's have a word of prayer together. Our Father God tonight, thank you that we're going to look at the precious creation of God in the church, Lord. Thank you that it is based on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, his life in humanity is the Lamb of God, is death on the cross, is resurrection from the grave. So tonight, Father, thank you for the precious institution of the church. We pray that you bless us as we open our minds, open our Bibles and our hearts to hear your word. We're grateful to be together in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin studying the establishment of the church, I want to remind you of this, and I want you to understand that Jesus never established the church as an option for the believer. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, I truly believe in my heart that we need to be a part of the ministry and the outreach of the church. That is the outreach arm of Jesus Christ into the world. It's his creation. And we join and bond all of our separate talents together that we might have a ministry to reach out with a well-rounded reach and ministry into the world with the love of Christ. So this is his ministry arm, and all of us are to be a part of that. Uh, we get instruction as individual believers through this word when we gather as the church body. 
Uh, and no Christian is an island. No Christian is to be a lone ranger. The church is paramount to the Christian's life. I will always believe that, that we need each other as brothers and sisters. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared on earth for 40 days, and then he ascended back to glory. But before his ascension, before he rose out of sight, he gave a command to all those who followed him. Not just those 2,000 years ago, but this command comes to us as well. It's called the Great Commission. Write this reference down or turn your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission of Jesus Christ to us and to His church is this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of of the world. Amen. So we see that that's the great commission of Jesus to his people. Let me also give you the great commission as Mark recorded it in his gospel. It has an edge on the end of it that we need to hear. Mark 16 verses 15 and 16. Listen to these words. And Jesus said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And so we can see that in Mark's gospel, there's a true statement of heaven and hell, being saved, being lost, and our eternal uh, destination, uh, depending on how we choose Jesus Christ into our life. So before Jesus' departure to heaven, it is very clear about our mission. We're to tell everyone. We're to tell the world about his love. We're to reach out to everyone with the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Every tribe, every nation, every color, every individual in the world should hear this good news. And now let me clarify a New Testament word. When we begin thinking about Jesus creating the church, one of the things that we've talked about throughout our lessons together are the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, how we can see Jesus, how we can see faith through the Old Testament, and how we can see the New Testament is coming as we look at the Old Testament. But there is a word that is used in the New Testament at least 22 times. It is used in Mark. It is used in Romans, used in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, and Revelation. The word that is used throughout the New Testament is the word mystery. Write that word down, the word mystery. In biblical terms, here's what mystery means. It is a truth of God that he wants us to know, but only God can reveal that truth to us. We'll never be able to figure it out in our own minds. We'll never come to it through logical conclusion. But a mystery is a truth of God he wants us to know, but only God can reveal that truth to us. Now, it's interesting to me that in Old Testament language and in Old Testament prophecy, we do not pick up on any major prophecy about the coming of the church. While we see the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, the coming of Christ 
And we see him born in the New Testament. There's no word in the Old Testament truly that we link to the, the existence of the church that's going to come in the New Testament days. There are thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament, but the church is not included there. It's a mystery. It's a truth of God that we will learn when the, tr- when the church is being founded. The mystery of God as he's revealed it to us is that Jesus uh, will provide forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to both the Jews and the Gentiles. That encompasses the whole world, the chosen people of God, the Jews, and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. Everyone should know the gospel of salvation. Uh, and everyone should know the church as the outreach arm of Jesus Christ. Every person should be a part of the church. But as we see... Uh, the Old Testament coming to the New Testament, there's something that's very interesting. The Jews and the Gentiles did not have a great relationship with one another. There was always conflict between the Jewish world and the Gentile world. And yet, with the establishment of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that all people are to be united in the ministry of the church, Jew and Gentile alike. Whoever is saved is a part of the church. There's not a Jewish church and a Uh, a Gentile church. There's not a church for one set of people and a church for another set of people, but all of us are to be united in the one church. And as the church begins, this is a radical move of God, breaking all traditions and all stereotypes of the past because it unites people under God who have never been united before. The church is Jesus' organization of God's love, and we're to express that love to one another as believers, no matter our color, no matter our nationality, no matter if we're Jew or Gentile, we love one another because the love of Christ resides in us. Now, as the birth of the church is coming, Jesus commanded his disciples to prepare themselves for the birth of the church. What does he ask them to do? Well, write this reference down. Luke 24, verse 49. Luke 24, verse 49. This is what Jesus says. This is the the very end of the gospel of Luke. He says, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And so Jesus is saying, Prepare yourself for the power of God to come upon you. Stay in Jerusalem until the power of God is poured upon you. So the disciples were to stay there until they've been clothed with the power of God Almighty. So Jesus says, wait. Let God work in your lives before you head out into the world as my representatives. I have something that God wants to give you to suit you up and get you ready to be a a representative and a witness in the world today. So 10 days after Jesus ascends to heaven, a mighty thing happens. It takes place on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Now that is a Jewish holiday, a Jewish holy day, the day of Pentecost. Before we move to the mighty act that happens that day at Pentecost in Jerusalem, What is that Jewish holiday about? What does Pentecost mean? Well, it's a Jewish feast day, and in Hebrew, it's called the Feast of Weeks. And what that holiday 
celebrates, that holy day celebrates, is the early wheat harvest. It's the giving of God of food to the world, especially to the Israelites. So Pentecost, Pentecost is a celebration of God's provision of the wheat harvest to his people. Well, how fitting that this mighty act of God happens on a harvest celebration because what we're going to see when they're celebrating the harvest of wheat what we're going to see with the creation of the church is a harvest of souls that's true on the first day of the church's uh, creation it is true today 2100 years after the creation of the church we too uh, continue to, to look out into the world to harvest souls that's what our mission and our ministry is all about so let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then I'm going to skip to verse 6 for a moment. But we want to see these words. The church is born on the day of Pentecost as that organization created by Jesus to harvest souls. We are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ through the church to the world. And the church goes into the fields to bring in that harvest of people. So look with me to Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4. Here's the creation of the church. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, or they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now skip down to the last part of verse 6. It says, Every man heard them speak in his own language. And so on the day of Pentecost... Jerusalem is full of people from all over the world as they're celebrating this holiday of the, of the wheat harvest, this holy day of the wheat harvest. The Spirit of God is poured on the disciples who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They begin to speak in other tongues. And what that means is people from all over the world, people who represented all language groups from all over the world, heard the gospel in their own native tongue and so what Jesus is teaching us through the creation of the church is that every person in the world should be able to understand the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ so with the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers and indwelling them with God's power and with God's truth they were given the job they were given the task as the creation of the church to reach out into the world with the good news of Jesus that others might come to him as Lord and Savior they were to go out into the world to all peoples, to all languages, to all colors, to all nations, and give the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the mission of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, that continues to be the mission of the church. We are to go into the world. That's why Clifford Baptist Church, we support missions and missionaries around the world to take the gospel there. And as the church is born here in Jerusalem on Pentecost, Peter, the lead disciple, receives the Spirit of God himself. Now, the Spirit, if you, if you want to get a, an English interpretation of that word, the Spirit of God is the helper. The, the Spirit lives in us as our helper in salvation. And Peter delivers with the inspiration of God's Spirit living in him 
as a believer in the Lord, Peter delivers what is called the Pentecost Sermon, the first official sermon of the Christian church. He delivers a sermon to all there. That sermon, write this reference down, the first sermon of the church is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. Read that passage devotionally uh, as you see the Word of God coming through that old disciple Peter, but he preaches that sermon of God with the Holy Spirit living in him, drawing people to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Read the entirety of that sermon, maybe in the morning, or maybe tonight in your final devotions or beginning devotions tomorrow. But that first sermon of Pentecost was powerful. Let me give you just a very few key statements from it. You will read these statements as you read the entirety. But in verses 16 and 17, this is in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is part of the sermon where Peter preaches. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that it should come to pass in the last day, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Look at verse 21 of Acts chapter chapter 2. Again, just a sentence out of the sermon of Peter. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Underline that verse. Whosoever, what color they are, what background of sin they might have, whoever they might be, whatever nation they're from, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What an important statement of God's Word. Look at verse 32 of Acts chapter 2. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. The church is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not serve a dead Lord on the cross. We serve a living Lord who was resurrected from the grave. Look at verse 36. And this is the last verse of the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So again, Peter ends his sermon by giving the glory and the honor to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Read all of that sermon sometime very soon. Now, here's the first altar call of the church. Very interesting, and it's very interesting the response to that altar call. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Peter says, in order to receive Jesus, first of all, you repent. You are sorry for your sin. You ask forgiveness of that which you have done against the holiness of God. The first step of salvation is repentance, sorrow, and then you come to Jesus Christ asking for forgiveness and asking to be a child of God, received by him through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And when Peter preached that first sermon of the Christian church on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. 
3,000 people came into the life of Christ and into the life of the beginning of the church. Now, while there was a harvest of joy, there was also a controversy that was arising in these moments from the Jewish leaders. They, they believed that favor with God in their minds came from following the rules and the laws that we know as the Old Testament. Go to the law of the Old Testament. You live that law. Live the Ten Commandments. Live the rules that God has laid down. And that's spirituality, according to the Jew of that day. But of course we know living rules, living laws, can never truly bring us righteousness. Living rules will never bring us the forgiveness that is the perfection of Jesus Christ. We will never come to Christ. We will never come to God. We will never enter heaven by living a set of rules because we are imperfect and all of us sin and all of us fall short of the glory of God. No, we need an intercessor. We need a Savior, and His name is Jesus Jesus alone was the one human being who lived that perfect life, who fulfilled all the law of the Old Testament. He lived a perfectly sinless, spotless life. His death on the cross fulfilled all of the Old Testament law of the sacrificial lamb. Lambs and bulls and goats and birds were all sacrificed in the Old Testament day, symbolically offered to take away the sin of people. And yet the final lamb was Jesus Christ. The effective lamb was Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh that he might go to the cross and die for us as the perfect sacrifice, as the sinless sacrifice to take our sin on his shoulders that we might be forgiven. So his death on the cross was the last lamb and the effective essential lamb of sacrifice. It opens the way of forgiveness to you, to me, to every person in the entire world. It is only through Jesus. No one will come to God the Father but by Him. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no man or woman will come to God the Father but by me. He is the effective lamb. He alone fulfilled the law. He alone died on our behalf. And he alone gives us access to our God. He alone can offer us a home in heaven. And as Peter says in his first sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, our bridge to God begins with repentance, sorrow, turning around, turning away from our sin, turning around to face the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridge to God. He is the only road to God. That's what the Bible teaches us. The world teaches that there are many roads and many routes to get to God, but, but the Bible says, no, there's one road, one route, one way, and His name is Jesus, the final Lamb. Now, I remind you here of an Old Testament symbol What was the sign? We studied this way back when we were in the Old Testament, back in the Genesis day at the beginning of our lessons together. What was the sign that was given to Abraham that a man belonged to God, chosen by God uh, as an Israelite? What was the sign? The sign was circumcision. It was the sign of the Old Testament. It was the badge that a man wore so that he was identified as a child of God, as the people of God. That was the physical badge of faith in God. But after Jesus came, 
Now listen very carefully. After Jesus came, that badge of the Old Testament was replaced. I want you to listen to Romans. Write this reference down. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Romans 2, verse 29. And here's what Scripture says. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. So no longer do we have faith or express our faith by the removing of skin from the body. But rather, Jesus teaches us, faith now brings us to the point that our eternal status with God and our forgiveness with God does not come from removing skin from the body, but sin from the heart. That's the badge. The badge that we wear is the removal of sin from our heart. And also, that physical symbol that we bear as the first step of obedience being in Christ is the symbol of baptism. Jesus Christ alone can remove sin from the heart. Jesus alone can wash us on the inside. The outward washing of baptism is the outward symbol of what Jesus has already done on the inside. We're showing the world through an outward baptism that Jesus has cleansed us on the inside. So baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is the symbol that we have been saved, that we already have been cleansed on the inside. I hope you see that thread of the Bible that connects from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Faith in God is not following laws and rules, but Jesus teaches us that it is a personal relationship. It's a personal moment that we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, and from that moment forward, we're going to walk with Him and grow in Him throughout our entire life. We're going to minister in His name. We're going to grow with Him in faith. Uh, We're going to allow Him to be with us, to direct our paths in every single day. Now, as the Holy Spirit came on this day of Pentecost, the ministry of Jesus Christ then began to travel out of Jerusalem and go into the world. The church was the means by which the gospel went into the world. Believers came to Christ. Believers came into the church. Of course, the church was basically home groups at that time. There were no such thing as church buildings in the first century. Church buildings weren't begun until the third or fourth century uh, But we we realize that Christians still banded together in the homes. And the church began going into the world, taking the good news out into the world where people needed to hear it. And this new move of God was received in various ways all over uh, the Holy Land and throughout the Roman Empire. Many came to Christ through the church. Many responded to the gospel. Many came to Christ through the ministry of the church reaching out into the world. But also, many denied Christ. And many wanted to destroy the ministry of the church. It threatened the world in some corners, and they wanted to destroy the church. Now, in this vein, thinking about people who received the word of Christ through the church, But also there were people who rejected Christ and wanted to destroy the church. In that vein of disliking the church, not wanting its ministry in the world, we meet tonight one of the most interesting, monumental characters of the Bible, a Jewish man 
whose name was Saul. Now, where do we meet Saul? Well, we meet Saul for the first time in the Bible when one of the original deacons of the church was being stoned to death because he was a minister of Christ and a preacher of the word, Stephen was being stoned. One of the first Christians, one of the first leaders of the church, and Stephen was being stoned by the Jews because of his stance in Jesus Christ. And as Stephen is stoned and martyred for his faith and for his testimony in Jesus, I want you to look at Acts chapter 7, write this reference down, Acts 7, verses 58 and 59. Listen to these words. Here's where we meet Saul. Acts chapter 7, 58, 59. Talking about Stephen, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then with verse 60, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died as a martyr of the Christian faith. But notice that there was this young man, probably late teens, early 20s. His name was Saul, a young leader in the Jewish faith. So Saul gave full approval to the death of one of these first Christians whose name was Stephen. Saul hated the church. Saul wanted the church erased off the earth. He was one of the original persecutors and leaders of persecution against the early Christian church. He proceeded to ravage the new church. He hated all Christians. He hated all things connected with Jesus. He hated the church. He wanted it removed from the earth. Now, it's not a biblical fact. We don't know this fact through the biblical word. But I personally believe that it is quite possible that Saul saw Jesus die on the cross. He was a young man, but I believe it was highly possible, and I believe probable, he hated Jesus so much, he hated the ministry of Christ as a leader of the Jews so much, I believe that he approvingly went to the crucifixion to see him die. It's not in the Bible, but that's a personal belief of mine. At that point, he would have been probably in his early 20s. Uh, he would have celebrated the death of Jesus. Saul was an extremely intelligent, talented Jewish man. He had been educated and trained by the best teacher of Jewish law. His name was Gamaliel. We see that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. But we see... God turned Saul's life around to become one of the greatest servants of God. Now, it's interesting that we see God take a man who absolutely hated the Savior and hated the church and turned him completely around to be one of the greatest servants of God through the church that the world has ever known. It's an amazing fact. But here's an amazing fact that I want to give to you tonight. And I want you to think about this because I, it is so very true. God will choose the most unlikely candidate to do huge things in the kingdom of God. God will choose the most unlikely person or the most unlikely event to do great things 
in the kingdom of God. Let me give you just a few examples to show you biblically what I'm talking about. God chose a prostitute whose name was Rahab. We see her story in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. She lived a life that was far removed from God, and yet she sheltered the spies that came into Jericho. So Rahab's life as a prostitute was turned around, and actually she shows up in the New Testament in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. He took a very unlikely woman in Jericho and turned her life around that she actually was in the birth lineage of Jesus. He chose a donkey to speak truth to a man whose name was Balaam. Uh, I love that story in Numbers 22. He chose a stutterer to lead two million people out of slavery in Egypt. His name was Moses. We see his story in the book of Exodus. He chose a coward to be a mighty military leader. His name was Gideon. And we see his story in Judges chapters 7 and 8. He chose a liar and a deceiver to be the father of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. The father of Israel was that man, Jacob, who started his life as a great deceiver. And we see his life recounted in Genesis He chose a young girl, a teenager, to be the mother of Jesus. Her name was Mary. He chose a woman who had five husbands and was living with a man to be a major witness to an entire city of Sychar. She was the woman at the well. In fact, tune in with me this coming Sunday because my sermon will begin on the woman on the well. Uh, It takes three sermons to get through that passage of Scripture, but I begin with it this coming Sunday. A very unlikely woman, married five times, living with a man, but she brings a city to come to meet Jesus. A very unlikely candidate. And he chose this man, Saul, to be the most major contributor to the Bible. He wrote most of the New Testament, and he started out as a man who absolutely hated Jesus and hated the church. It's an amazing story. But God turns Saul completely around. Now, his conversion, here's another one of those stories I'd like for you to read in your devotions. Uh, Maybe day after tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night, read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. This is the conversion experience of Saul, that Jew who was turned around from hating Jesus to loving Christ as his Lord and his Savior. You read that devotionally. Here's the truth about Saul. If you remember, he was renamed Paul. Now, that was not a miraculous thing. You know, God renamed Jacob Israel. But uh, while that was quite miraculous that God renamed uh, Jacob, uh, Saul's renaming was a bit more practical. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul was a Gentile name. And Paul was sent as the missionary to the Gentiles, so he took the name Paul to be more in identity with a Gentile population. His name was most familiar to the Gentiles when he came to them as Paul the apostle and Paul the missionary rather than the Jewish Saul. But Paul was an amazing man, a man who came out of total hatred to be totally surrendered to the Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that he would not do to save, to save someone, to, to uh, preach salvation to someone. 
There's no place that he would not go. There was no trip that was too rough for him. There was no person that he would not speak to. He spoke to paupers. He spoke to demon-possessed. He spoke to the cripples, and he spoke to kings. There was no one that Paul would not speak to about Jesus. Total commitment. Now, why did Paul accept the commission to go to the Gentiles? He was a Jew. Why didn't he go to his own family? Why didn't he stay right there in Jerusalem or in the Holy Land and minister to his own Jewish family? Why did he take on a commission as a Jewish man to go into all the Gentile world as a pioneer missionary to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I I want you to write this down. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. And here's kind of the setup of these verses. Acts 14, 44 to 46. So Paul and Barnabas, another servant of God, are in Antioch. And Paul is preaching in a a Jewish synagogue there. uh, And there's a group there. Uh, And the next day, Paul goes to the public streets of the city of Antioch. He's preaching to both Jews and Gentiles, and here's what happens. Look at, again, look at Acts 13, 44 through 46. Here's the Word of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the Word of God. Again, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the city of Antioch. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, speaking to the Jews, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. There's the turning point. Here's why a Jewish man went to a new group of people. His own family rejected him, blasphemed him, contradicted his word, would not hear him, would not listen. And so he says, if you won't listen to me as my family of the Jews, then I'm turning by God's will and God's desire to go to the Gentile world. So there is a Jewish man who heads to the Gentile world as a pioneer missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a major turning point for Paul. He accepts God's will to go exclusively as a missionary to the Gentiles. And as he travels, he preaches the gospel to as many Gentile audiences and people as he can find. And as they're saved, he forms Christian churches throughout the Roman Empire. Now, we're getting close to closing our study tonight as we are looking at the ministry of Paul. In coming lessons, we're going to be looking at the letters and the words that Paul will be writing. But as we close the study tonight, I think all of us know, if you're a student of God's Word, that Paul had three major missionary journeys, three complete journeys that he made to bring the Roman Empire to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that's true, We also know that all three of those journeys are uh, accounted for in the book of Acts. But uh, when you read about the three journeys, sometimes it's a little bit hard for us to see where one journey starts and ends and where the next journey starts and where it ends. And so what I want to do is... is, uh, give you the scripture references of those three journeys so you can write this down and you can read it for yourself, the three missionary journeys 
of Paul the missionary. So write these references down as we get close to the end of our lesson tonight. The first missionary journey of Paul the missionary is recorded in Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 4, and the first journey runs through Acts chapter 14, verse 28. So, Acts 13, 4 through 14, 28, first missionary journey of Paul. Second missionary journey of Paul is Acts chapter 15, verse 40, through Acts chapter 18, verse 22. So, mission journey number two, Acts 15, 40 through 18, 22. Journey number three of Paul the missionary is Acts chapter 18, verse 23, through the end of Acts where he ends up in the city of Rome, and eventually becomes a prisoner there. So those are the three journeys of this great man, Saul, who became Paul, the missionary to the Gentile world, the writer of the majority of our New Testament. That's where our lesson ends tonight. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to enter the home stretch. Seven more lessons, and we are done. Uh, lesson number 32 is the last one we will have. Uh, but as we hit the home stretch next week, we're going to begin on the letters of the New Testament. That's where we will head as we open our study next week. God bless you. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number 25 as we see the creation of the church and the creation of one of the greatest missionaries of all time, the missionary Paul. God bless you. Thank you for joining me. Good night.